cord blood banking, hot, hot term in both OBGYN and the general clinical practice. Ramifications, implications for all sorts of applications in medicine. But there's a lot that's misunderstood about cord blood banking as well, both in terms of the practice of cord blood retrieval and in the banking itself. And I'm here with somebody who can really help set matters straight for us. His name is Dr. Jordan Perlow. He's Director of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and Associate Professor of OBGYN at the University of Arizona. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and this is ReachMD. It's great to have you with us, Dr. Perlow. No, it's good to be back with you again. <laughs> so this marks the anniversary, uh, one year, since we last came together to speak about core blood banking. We covered some of the, the general ideas of cord blood banking at the time and just what it meant um, to retrieve cord blood, why people would do it, and we'll touch upon that again. But I understand from your lecture that you recently gave that there has been a recent ACOG bulletin specifically about cord blood banking. Is that right? That's correct. So it was very timely uh, that I'd be giving this talk today because my green journal arrived, the journal uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology, the official journal of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, showed up in my mailbox just a few days before I left. And lo and behold, there's the updated brand new committee opinion as it relates to umbilical cord blood banking. So it was very timely. <laughs> and what were some of the messages that came out through that bulletin? Well, there's not a whole lot of changes, really, to speak of. I think that the college did a very comprehensive job in, in putting the bulletin together. But one of the things that is still put forth in the bulletin is that there really is no imperative for the obstetrician-gynecologist to speak to patients about their options for cord blood banking unless the patient asks. So that's something that I think that is worth discussing, and, and people may have different opinions about that, because they do go on to say, however, that there could be the potential for a family member to be treated for a disease that might be treatable with cord blood stem cells, and that banks will generally provide banking of cord blood stem cells without any charge, something that's called directed donation under those circumstances. So despite the comment in the bulletin or in the, in the opinion that one doesn't have to incorporate that into routine practice, there is an imperative, I believe, for obstetricians to be aware of some elements of the science on an ongoing basis of the use of cord blood stem cells so that they could potentially identify the situation that was, in fact, described in the newest uh, committee opinion on this subject so that those opportunities for cord blood collection are not lost. Hmm. So does an update like that, d does that reflect a political decision-making process, or was there some other motive or rationale behind uh, trying to clarify that an imperative isn't needed in this case? You know, I, I don't think that I really have the insight to, to understand what it is that prompts specifically uh, the timing of a new opinion to be put out by the college, but I do respect the opinions of the college, and I appreciate the work that they do in synthesizing the literature and putting forth their opinions as it relates to their thoughts on how we should approach a particular topic, such as umbilical cord blood banking. I mean, you are somebody who's absolutely on the forefront of cord blood banking nationwide, worldwide. Does that change in approach? Does that set your field back, or does it, is it sort of a, 
are you ambivalent about that in terms of how it actually affects your, your ability and your colleagues' ability to, to practice as far as making recommendations, as far as disseminating information and education to patients? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I don't, I don't think it sets us back. It, it's not a change from the previous bulletin. So the same opinion came forth previously when that was last published, and it's just reiterated presently. But I think what's also important is, is another point that's brought out in the bulletin, that many states have enacted laws that actually mandate the education of pregnant patients as it relates to their options for cord blood banking. And generally, those state laws speak to the options of both family or private banking, as well as the opportunity for public donation. So although the committee opinion states that conversation only needs to take place if a patient asks about this particular subject, they also state as one of their bullet points the importance of checking with local medical societies to determine if state law exists in the particular state that that provider is practicing in, which would require some form of conversation to take place with the patient regarding those options. Hmm. And it seems to me like aspects of this bulletin, and I don't want to put words in ACOG's mouth, I certainly don't want to put any words in yours, but it, it seems like aspects of this bulletin or the update that you just described reflect perhaps at least in part a sensitivity towards the ethical issues that some people have towards stem cells, obviously the hot buzzword. Core blood banking makes use of stem cells. But is that concern misplaced? Because when I think of core blood, I think of something that's readily available that's going to go to waste anyway in the, in the spectrum yeah. of labor and delivery. Well, I think it's not so much an ethical issue as it relates to the use of those cells because actually I've never come across anyone who indicated any sort of ethical or moral objection, either an individual or a medical society, to the use of what, you know, up until not too long ago was just recently medical waste. Uh, but I think that the issue where the hesitancy comes in terms of incorporating this into clinical practice as a uh, required, if you will, component or a primary component of providing prenatal care really relates to a couple of things. One being that it does take some time to do this. Number two, that there should be evidence-based drivers to the things that we're required to do. And I think that those are, you know, the, the main issues. And then, of course, there's the for-profit nature of the family or the private cord blood banks that seems to create a little bit of, I think, irritation, for lack of a better word, you know, when we think about companies that are out there for profit and uh, attempting to create this industry that has arisen in private family banking without a specific recommendation that we even be talking to patients about this. So there may be some, some friction as it relates to that aspect of it. But clearly, you know, if we get to the science of all of this, there are those situations where uh, we're not talking really here about experimental type things. We're talking about the fact that we're probably at this point in time closing in on close to 35,000 people that have been treated with umbilical cord blood stem cells in the treatment of clearly life-threatening diseases. So this is not something that's just in the laboratory or theoretical. This is clinical practice on a daily basis throughout the world. Well, why don't we hone in on that then um, into the applications, the utilization of this in clinical practice. You said it's already making a big dent in helping to treat a number of diseases. 
tell me a little bit about that. What kind sure. of diseases, what range of diseases are we talking about? Well, the, the primary diseases that are being treated at present are uh, related to the hematological malignancies, so primarily leukemia, lymphoma, myelodysplastic syndrome, thrombocythemia has been treated in this manner as well. And then we get into the other blood, the non-malignant diseases, but the genetic blood diseases such as hemoglobinopathies, sickle cell anemia, thalassemia, multiple studies out there that have shown amazing improvements because what you're doing for those sickle cell children, for example, is you're rendering them hematologically normal, generally children that have been dependent upon transfusions for their entire lives, dealing with chronic pain, requiring oxygen, requiring pain medication, receiving a stem cell transplant of cord blood stem cells, and then having a normal CBC, having a normal life thereafter. So there's the hemoglobinopathies, there's the malignant hematologic diseases, as I mentioned, and then there are treatments for fairly rare primary immune deficiency disorders, and then we have treatments for the inborn errors of metabolism that Dr. Joanne Kurtzberg pioneered at Duke University with her co-workers, where diseases such as Hurler's syndrome and Crabbe disease, for example, conditions that when I was in medical school back in the early 80s, these were things that were genetic. There's nothing you can do. Later, there were some treatments in terms of replacement of the enzyme that these children are deficient in that showed some benefit, but generally no benefit in terms of the neurological degradation that those children experience because of those diseases, because of the impact of the blood-brain barrier on the enzyme replacement therapy not being able to cross. And then you have Dr. Kurtzberg and, again, her co-workers as well doing this work of treating those children with cord blood stem cell transplants, showing remarkable improvements and outcomes. I wish I could show the pictures, but Dr. Kurtzberg graciously did share some of the before and after pictures of children with these very severe conditions, showing an amazing benefit, not just in their phenotypic appearance, but also neurological um, improvement and being able to attend school and doing well in school. Really some amazing stories that are kind of under the radar. As, as I talk to people about this, there's very little awareness that those conditions are now being treated. So the inborn errors of metabolism, primary immune deficiency disorders, hematologic malignancy, and the hemoglobinopathies are where we are currently in terms of the, the bulk of current treatment using cord blood stem cells. And as somebody who is following that very carefully, given your involvement in cord blood banking, I imagine perhaps you didn't expect to essentially become de facto hematologist slash medical geneticist by default. <laughs> well, that's a, a good point. And, you know, that's probably one of the things that keeps most of my colleagues away from all of this is it really does go into areas of medicine that we aren't particularly trained for. So you do kind of take a step into an unknown world. And I, I remember attending the first conference that I went to on cord blood stem cell transplant. There wasn't an OB in the audience. There were probably 200 people there at the time. Now that conference has expanded to close to 1,000 attendees, as it turns out. But I was swimming in a sea of hemonc people and immunologists and transplantation biologists and folks of that sort. And there I was in OBGYN trying to, to learn a little bit about this. And hopefully I've gotten enough to share with our OBGYN colleagues to spark some interest and at least create an understanding that this isn't 
simply about for-profit companies trying to make money, that there is a evidence-based science behind the use of cord blood stem cells. Right. And you're referring in some regards to the this new frontier. You said expansion is a big element of, of this field. Obviously brings to mind, and we, we only have a few more minutes, so I don't want to belabor this with you too much or make you feel like you need to get into a lecture with me, but regenerative medicine, probably the great frontier. Yeah, uh, core blood banking, core blood stem cell usage and application seems to be a very, very big part of regenerative medicine's direction and momentum. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it is a frontier. It's not the present, although at present there's a ton of research being done right now, some in humans, mostly in animal studies, using cord blood stem cells, but also using the mesenchymal stem cells that are found within the Wharton's jelly of the cord itself. So we collect the cord blood for the benefit of hematopoietic stem cells, and what's been learned is that what's left over, the cord and the Wharton's jelly, is probably the richest source that's been identified of mesenchymal stem cells, which are even more primitive and have the ability to differentiate not just into the red cells, white cells, and platelets like cord blood stem cells, but to differentiate into all the various tissue types of the body, including neural tissue, which is why this is being looked at in uh, stroke studies, for example, into myocardium, where there's been studies looking at the treatment of myocardial infarction and congestive heart failure, cardiomyopathy. These mesenchymal stem cells can be differentiated into islet cells that produce insulin, so hence the studies looking at diabetes, and it just really goes on and on and on. So you're talking about diseases that in terms of prevalence far surpass, infinitely surpass the things that are being treated now, relatively rare things such as immune deficiency and inborn errors of metabolism and the hematologic malignancies. So it is very uh, exciting. One that really has caught my eye is some of the work with animals uh, in terms of spinal cord injury, showing some benefits, but still no randomized trials that I'm aware of to date. And I think what, what we need to realize is that when we talk to patients about this, that we, we, we're not salespeople. You know, we, we want to present the information in a, in a true fashion, and we don't want to oversell the potential as it relates to regenerative medicine. But again, I first started talking about all of this back in the early to mid-90s, and now we've, we've seen exponential growth in the use of cord blood stem cells and, you know, I'm not a, a fortune teller, but looking forward, I would say that the future does indeed look bright for potential expansion of the applications of cord blood stem cell use, but also especially the mesenchymal stem cells that are being retrieved from cord tissue. Well, you summed it up beautifully in the one to three minutes I gave you on, you on the great frontier. I have to commend you next time. I promise I will start with the regenerative medicine side to give you Super. a little bit more time to talk about this expansive element, uh, the expansive field. I've been speaking with Dr. Jordan Perlow from the University of Arizona. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. To catch this and other interviews in this series, come on down to ReachMD.com. We'll be there for you, and we're looking forward to seeing you. Thanks again, Dr. Perlow. Thanks for having me.